DJ Simulationistas. So, with Dr. D, Dan Raymer, and Dr. J, Janice Palaganis, coming at you from the Center for Medical Simulation in Boston, Massachusetts. So buckle up your mannequin, and let's roll. DJ Simulation is to SUP. You're here with Janice Palaganis and... And Dan Raymer. SUP, Janice. SUP, Dan. Yeah, we're here at the IMSH meeting, and yeah, we have a... a little noise in the background here. We have a huge privilege, because we have the famous Dr. Paul Frampus with us. Paul is an emergency medicine physician at Pittsburgh, and is the director of the world-famous Wiser Center, the simulation program that's been going on for many years, so 20 years or so. And he is a uh, past president of uh, Society for Simulation in Healthcare. What number were you, Paul? You stumped me on the first question, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> I want to say it was eight or nine? Nine? Yeah, yeah seems nine? like. Yeah, yeah. Seems like wow, that. So I guess I'm with we one can run. We can, we can run the list later. <laughs> right. <laughs> I am amongst SSH presidents. Yes, you are. <laughs> right between us. Right. Janice, gold. just someday when you grow up, well, you might be an SSH president as well. Up, I think you have the you material, okay. don't you? I agree. I agree. Yeah. I think yeah. you have the chops for it. <laughs> yeah. 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 So I'm really excited to talk to Paul because, um, uh, Paul, we're Facebook friends. I do get to see your pictures from China, yeah. and it seems that you go to China at least once a week, and. <laughs> I see pictures of food, yeah, and so I'm always fascinated about food, and then I want to talk about simulation in China. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I'm an adventurous eater. Uh, and you I like are. To, I like to try everything, and uh, I sometimes get my limits tested uh, in China. The other thing is, unlike a lot of folks from Pittsburgh, I love spicy food, so when I go to the uh -huh. Hunan province and the Sichuan province, I'm really in heaven. <laughs> So I am totally the opposite. <laughs> I am not an adventurous eater. And no, so he's not. I don't like to go to places like right. Okay, when uh, we go to China, we have to go to a pizza place. Yeah. Well, <laughs> my oldest son. I'm not that bad. Right. My oldest son um, went with me to Shanghai last year. And he's a very adventurous eater as long as the adventure includes a steak or a bacon cheeseburger or a chicken nugget. Yeah. And uh, he had a Chocolate rough, he had a bit too. of a rough time. So when I got to, I, I, we went to Taipei as well on that trip, and I actually broke down and took him to Texas Roadhouse oh, in Taipei, and he ate everything. <laughs> <laughs> so Paul, teaching in Asia always brings up the issue of does the culture change? debriefing? Does it change simulation teaching? That's a and, very common question, yeah. And so um, I have my ideas about it, but what do you think? You know, I think that there are, there are cultural differences, obviously. There are language barriers that, uh, that fall into it. And then there's what I call the localization. So, so the, the translation and the language barrier is one thing. And then what applies locally is, is as complicated as the language barrier. From a cultural perspective, particularly in China, I, I think there's less of a cultural difference after you gain trust and work with them for a while and you find out that 
they want to be the best that they can be. They want to be the best that they can be in terms of a physician or a nurse or a pharmacist. They want to take great care of patients and they want to learn how to do it safely. With the question of debriefing, I find is a very interesting one, Dan, because what I find is people just don't like to change their ways. And I find that to be the more vexing issue with teaching people how to debrief. People in China always want to say, you don't understand our culture. I said, I do understand your culture. It's just like mine. We don't like to change our ways. <laughs> and so trying to get them to engage in a debriefing process is quite foreign to them. They are used to a hierarchical education system where the professor professes and the learners take whatever the professor is professing. Um, but after we work with debriefing classes and practicing and, and like I said, gaining trust is a, a big factor in it all, things I, I find are, are, are quite similar. Quite similar. So, so that's great to hear because I, that's been my observation as well. Really? Okay. That, that I always say that the cultural differences are sort of on the surface and they come from their being socialized to a particular educational system. And once you get past that, they care about their patients yeah. just like yeah. we do. They yeah. love their families just like yeah. we do. People are the same. They're much well, more the same than they, they are I mean, different. So I'm just going to take a different view in here because, I mean, I have described it like an orange. All, all different cultures are an orange, and the size of the peel is always different, but the you know inside is always the same. Yet I don't think as a society we focus enough on the cultural sensitivities, like how hard it is to get to the peel. Like we keep teaching the meat of it, and I and I just wonder, like these people are gonna go back and apply it, and if we're not talking about these cultural differences, it's much harder for them to apply, and we have to talk about it. So when are we gonna start focusing on that? I, I think that I, I I do address the cultural differences in in many ways, but I also. I also actually now put it out there and say, you know, there's a piece of this that is getting you to trust me to change your way. I said, and, and I, you know, I, I work hard to understand the culture, and I'll give you some examples. The cultural differences, and some of this is demography, uh, but the cultural differences are the, the education and teaching in healthcare in China. You just have to see and teach so many more people. So what, what we can do in the United States can't happen in China efficiently unless we double the number of people that are benefiting from the educational encounter. So if you, you can call that cultural or not. Um, the other thing is understanding what their work life and their life truly is. Um, and understanding that even the practicing physicians and practicing nurses are typically working many, many more hours per week than we are in the United States, for instance. Mm -hmm. So what the expectation of them contributing to the simulation program or, the, or being able to invest a lot of time is limited by what they're working clinically. Mm -hmm. So if you want to acknowledge that as a cultural difference, maybe, maybe not. I, um, I think it is. I think so and, too. And, and so I, I guess I'm interested in debriefing. Can you explain the differences you see in like, have you structured or educated pre-briefing differently in different cultures based on what you know about those cultures? Is there any difference? I, I, don't, I don't think there's a difference other than convincing them the need that it needs to be done. I think that there's many places 
where, we're be, where we begin our faculty development training program. And it's, it's truly a blank slate for the simulation environment. And I think that they, there are still some misconceptions around having the simulation there and thinking that, oh, they're just going to treat this like real life. And, and skip the need for so the briefing the of the environment, orienting kind of them to the, yeah, I, I, I really do feel like oh, it's Okay, uh, so you don't do anything same. different in the setup of the participants? In, in this, in some cases, in some places in Asia, I think that there is a little bit of difference. For example, um, I think in Korea uh, and in Japan in particular, some attention has to be given to the seniority of the learners so that you, don't put the most very senior people in a potentially embarrassing situation because that's not tolerated as well, or, or it, it, I should say it creates barriers. Um, so so in, your, in the orientation part, I think, you're really causing me to think about this in a way that I hadn't before, but I think in the orientation, we just naturally pay a little bit more attention to the very senior, senior learners and professors and make mm -hmm. sure that they are very, very, very comfortable with whatever environment that you're exposing them to. And you're trying to shield them from having to say, I don't know, in front of junior learners. Yes, I've noticed that as well, that they just have a much stronger notion of respect for their elders and their seniors, and uh, there are unwritten rules about that. I wonder if you've had this experience. Uh, Jenny Rudolph came and taught with me once in Hong Kong, and I told her, um, you, you can't ask your beautiful open-ended questions of the group because no one will answer you <laughs> until the most senior person has spoken. And so you need to call on the senior person. And she said, yeah, yeah, I get it. You know, I get it. And then she got up there and dead <laughs> silence. She just, you, you know, she just couldn't help herself but to ask, you know, I kind of inter intervened and, and asked the most senior person her question and he gave a great answer. And after that, everything was Everybody fine. Everybody felt free to participate. And yeah. have you found that Absolutely. same? Absolutely, exact same, same scenario. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, and as you say that, I do also think that it helps to interject some closed-ended questions just to get the comfortable conversation going because I think there's the the concept of an open-ended question is a bit um, new uh, for for a lot of folks in Asia I think uh -huh. and and then and then when you put the hierarchy thing on top of it there's there's a lot for us to think about uh-huh I, I found that if you ask an open-ended question of a group they actually consider it rude because it, uh, and, and they've told me this, that, that if one person answers, they're showing off. Mm. They feel like they're showing off in front of their, right. their peers. But if you ask them a direct question and pick on one person and ask them either an open or a closed-end question, they almost always have a superb answer. Right. And they don't consider that rude Whereas in America, if you call on the students by name, they start to think you're, um, you know, picking on them, right. and, and uh, they consider they okay. consider that rude. <laughs> right. I, you know, I've learned so much from our uh, fellows from China and around conversations and how, in their culture, just from their perspective, as they watch a lot of our debriefings, they say we talk too much as Americans. And, and that, and I really take, I think about that as I 
try to practice my listening skills and the more I practice I realize yeah we do talk too much and so do you do you get any kind of pushback on talk and debriefing and no I think what I see with our visiting scholars and fellows at Wiser um, is they are a little surprised when we are really framing everything as a question and trying to draw from the mind of the student. They, 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 it's a, no pun intended, a bit of a foreign concept uh, for them. Uh, but then they, then they warm up to it. And I think that they understand the value of the discovery and they start to see it happening more routinely as they do more and more course observations. And, and of course, we're doing didactic learning with them. So they're, they're growing longitudinally and they start to see that it, it really does work. And, and then the other tough sell, I find, is trying to convince them uh, or trying to let them learn that you can accomplish this great learning with debriefing in the same amount of time. When you're teaching it from a didactic perspective, it makes it sound like it's going to take so much longer to convert to this idea of debriefing instead of just telling them what they need to know. And then they're, surpri they're surprised to find out that after they become proficient with debriefing, they can still accomplish the learning goals in the same amount of time. And so I've known you for a long time. You're a pretty straightforward, tell it like it is guy, as I am. And uh, I, I wonder if you've found that, if you've had that feeling like, oh my goodness, they're so much more subtle about this than I am. I, I think that varies uh, uh, from country to country in Asia. And I think that goes back to your cultural question, because I think that there are subtleties that, that, that are watched for, let's say, in, in Japan or Korea or China, that we probably typically don't watch for. And, and I agree, sometimes you hear, especially when they're practicing a debriefing, they start talking about something that just shocks you because they notice something that yeah. just kind of flew right on by us. Uh, uh -huh. So I, I think there is, there is a lot to understand uh, in, in that yeah. regard. And, and then the other thing is how they have they have some things that they just absolutely believe is right or wrong without a gray zone. Um, and yes. I, I find a lot of, I'll call it absolutism, uh, in some of the decision making, right. particularly amongst the physicians when we're working in the specialties where I have you know, expertise. I, I, I see a lot of that absolutism, whereas I think our position, like as a United States emergency medicine physician, you might think there's a, there's a gray zone of decision making. Uh -huh. Right, and, right. And, and, and it's interesting because sometimes when the trainee, in the, the participant in the simulation, kind of violates one of those absolute frames, uh -huh. if you will, uh, the, 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 the debriefer can be a little bit sharp about it. Yeah. <laughs> uh -huh. So that's the kind of the flip side. Yeah. They can be very yeah. blunt yeah. when it comes yeah. to those things, right. Right. Yeah. but they're very subtle yeah. about the kind of interpersonal things about people's leadership and how they communicated. But if they give the wrong drug, boy, they, they let them have it. Right. Yeah, that, that, yeah that's exactly right. Exactly <laughs> yeah. right. Yeah. So there is this phenomena that I have experienced as um, an ethnic uh, nurse in, in the clinical environment, and I just love that you you had uh, mentioned the phrase like uh, you wouldn't understand this as part of our culture because I do see that happen when I'm with one of my uh, like Caucasian colleagues, and because I think the way I look 
people just automatically connect. And I think when I'm in the clinical environment, I could just walk into a room and if it's a Hispanic lady or an Asian lady, they just have, there's this phenomena that I can't really articulate, but it's almost like they just feel immediately at ease when they see me being a colored person. And I just don't know how it is. Like, I, I would love to hear more about your experience on gaining that cultural credibility. Well, when I walk into the room and you're there, I feel at ease already also. Aw, <laughs> I love my friend Paul Francis. Uh, <laughs> you're much nicer to her than I am. <laughs> so, so gaining the credibility, I, I, I think there's, um, it, it's a multi-step process. Uh, at times, you, you get credibility because you've accomplished something and in the introduction they think you're an expert or they introduce you as an expert and that's like sort of step one. Um, but w what I find is just trying to be uh, warm and, and humble uh, with folks anywhere in the world. I, it, it's my strategy for, for credibility. I think infusing, talking about serious things, but infusing, infusing humor is something that works in just about every culture that I have had to interact with. Mm -hmm. um, and when they can think that you're an expert, but recognize that you're a real person just like they are, I find that communication channels seem to open and, um, and become uh, a, a lot easier. I, and, I, and I mean, and the, and the answer is, that's where the credibility comes from, I believe. So, um uh, so back to the food, Paul. What what uh, um, what's the best thing you ever ate in Asia? Oh wow, Dan, that's tough. Something that's spicy. Tough. Yeah, I I really enjoy um, spicy, as I mentioned before. But but I I enjoy the hot pot environment oh, where yes. where there's the the boiling soup, uh, particularly uh, in, as I mentioned, in Hunan province and Sichuan province where they can get the really spicy broth and then you get to sample from whatever meat or vegetables you want. You kind of cook it in, in the yeah. broth and, yeah. and, and I do like that. My yeah. kids, by the way, are always like, why are we paying to cook our own food? Right, 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 <laughs> right. Yeah. I love it though. The, the other thing I like in China um, is preparations of white fish uh, when they uh, steam it uh, and or they they put it in a, uh, a suey broth or and, and when it's cut in in Hunan it would be covered with red chili peppers as well and and I have not found that in any Chinese restaurant in the United States the the, the way that it's done there I mean, I, I'd say I'd say that's probably two of my favorite eating environments it's worth the trip, I guess. I think so. All think right. So. Well, thank you very much, Paul Frampus. It's been delightful to talk to you and compare notes with our experiences. <laughs> and uh, you too, Janice. Who Thanks, Paul. Thanks for joining You're us. You're quite welcome. This was great, and uh, I hope, uh, hope it turns out well. DJ Simulationistas, what's up? It's brought to you by the Center for Medical Simulation. Find out more about CMS and learn about our simulation instructor training and course offerings at www.harvardmedsim.org. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.